Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Harbor this morning. Let's stand together. We're going to begin some with some worship time today. Let's stand on your feet, please. This is the season for a new anointing. This is the season for a fresh outpouring. That the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine. That the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine as we declare. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. In the beginning God created, and for His pleasure all creation sings. Every son and daughter of the King of glory now arise and shine. Every son and daughter of the King of glory now arise and shine as we declare. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let your glory fill the earth. Let your glory fill the earth. Let your glory I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. King of glory, fill the earth. King of glory, fill the earth. King of glory. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Where streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, 
When I found in the desert place, though I walked through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name, blessed be your name. On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. You cannot take away, you cannot take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You cannot take Lord is made. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. 
I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And by hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me. Yeah. 
November, we don't use the phrase light up Pepperdine lightly. I know has has been discussed and will continue to be for those of us for whom it was our first experience thinking that there is a wall of fire all around our campus. Uh, somebody asked how close did it get? I live up on the Drescher campus. Uh, the, the burn stopped 40 paces from my front door and that was due to a lot of hard work by folks here at Pepperdine, by our fire department uh, and uh, the grace of God. So we're glad to have a whole lot of fire this week but not have to call the LA fire department while you're here. And God poured down the rains and has made this place so beautiful. The transformation was just overwhelming. And that's as good a way as any for me to say that for the next few moments I want you to think of a blackened parched land and realize that many would say that's what the statistics are about the church, specifically the church in America today. Declines, the loss of young people, churches that are graying. But I believe that there is a heavenly water, the Holy Spirit's engagement in our churches that can, just as this land was revived, not simply revive, but help our congregations to thrive. And I was thrilled when the group that is working with Growing Young. Now, Growing Young sounds like the book that most of us would like to buy. Can I get a, oh yeah. All my wrinkled homies who are honest out there know we get up in the morning and say, what happened to that dashing young person who was here just a couple of weeks ago? But Growing Young doesn't have to do with eating organic, praise the Lord. It has to do... It has to do with our churches growing young. The team at the Fuller Youth Institute and the Youth Institute that has blessed this university in a number of ways is now working with a dear good friend of mine, someone who's been in youth ministry in churches longer than he wants me to tell you, serving in, in Lubbock as well as serving at the Hills Church and serving with Lubbock Christian University. David Fraze is one of those guys that we call on when we want someone to talk about youth ministry. In fact, for all the youth ministers or youth leaders in the room tomorrow, David's going to be speaking on our youth leadership track. 
But today, he's here to talk to you and to share a little bit about a simple way that your congregation can take steps to fill some of those pews with young people who will be the future of our congregations. Would you please make welcome David Frays. So I'll go ahead and say it, uh, this summer is 31 years of youth ministry. So either I'm really called to it or have emotionally disordered. So you can choose. Still like talking to middle school kids. If I see a high school kid with chains, I ask where their dogs are. I mean, that's kind of what I do. And a lot of things have changed in 31 years. Some of y'all are old enough to remember that, especially if you were from the Midwest and it was 100 degrees, we'd always have a campfire on the last night, even if it's 100. Does everybody remember that? And we'd hold hands and we'd sing, it only takes a spark. And if you're a really good youth minister, at the very end, you remember, um, I'll shout it from the mountaintops. Yeah, that's usually what happened because most of us were from non-clapping, hand-raising churches. When that would happen, at summer camp, the youth minister would say, excuse me, I'm going to sing that one more time. I'll shout it from the mountaintops. Do you realize people will be lost if we don't shout it from the mountaintops? I'm going to sing it one more time. So think of someone that you need to invite to church to hear Jeff Walling preach. I'll shout it from the mountaintops. Then, then we started having church, and we'd look around the fire, and we'd be sweating, and we'd say, I love you. I'll be there forever. I've met you for three days, but you are my best friend. And we would have that moment where we'd pull out a ball of yarn. Do you remember the ball of yarn? That was great ministry modality back in the day. You're Dutch reformed. Here's what we would do. That ball of yarn, we'd throw it and say, okay, I love you, and I'm going to be there forever for you. Now, I want you to hold on to your part of the yarn. I want you to throw it over here. And then we'd make this large web. How many of y'all did that? The faithful. So we had this large web, and we talk about, okay, if you let go of that one part, then our group is going to be missing. What if I were to tell you that in 31 years of youth ministry, I want you to think about this. We train youth ministers better than ever. We have youth facilities. We have videos. We don't use overhead projectors. We don't even have to use color overheads. We got these things, screens and moving videos. And we still lose 50% of our kids. So 20 years ago, facing that reality, before I started at the Hills, I went to Fuller and I studied Deuteronomy 6 to go back to the basics and began to talk about intergenerational. How do we change the way that we do youth ministry so that we don't lose our students? And out of that research from the Fuller Youth Institute, we all work together and we develop something many of y'all are familiar with called Sticky Faith, where we researched the kids that were the 50% that made it and we found, okay, here's some things that we can do to change what we do in youth ministry modality to grab these kids and, and hopefully give them some sticky principles. But then we realized that it really wasn't a youth ministry problem at all. It's a church problem. And so what happened is we took that research and we went to another level and Jake was one of the authors, an incredible young theologian, also incredible researcher. And it was one of the greatest research projects in all of America demographically. Everybody was involved in it from every faith tribe, uh, every demographic, men, women, gender, uh, the idea of ethnicity and growing young was developed. And we 
we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But last December, 40 thought leaders in youth ministry, and it's not a name drop. I need to let you know who was in the room. For from all the major churches, from every brand that you can think of, and from Barna, Kinnaman was there. And Pine Top shared their information with us, and here's what they said. One million young people will walk away every year from religion. And your reaction was our reaction. So we started asking the question, what does the future of your church look like? One of the things we haven't been able to do is to look at our faith tribe and how we're doing in regards to these, what you're going to find out, the growing young competencies. And through a relationship with Fuller and LCU and Pepperdine, we're going to provide a unique opportunity that we're going to start today and a year from now, we're going to be able to see how we're doing in the growing young modalities. So, Jake, if you come up and share with us, please welcome my friend Jake Mulder. Thanks, David. Some of you wondered if I was just David's bodyguard, but I'm not big enough to be David's bodyguard. Uh, yeah, on behalf of the Fuller Youth Institute, Fuller Seminary, it's an honor uh, to be with you to talk about uh, this endeavor that we're going to partner in for just a minute. If we can go back one slide to the, where it said, uh, what does the future of your church look like? It's important to ground this. We're not just talking about what does the future of your youth ministry look like. We think that's a very important question, but this conversation we're going to have is not just about your youth ministry. This is a question about legacy. It is a question about the faith that we are passing on, that we're handing down to our children, to our, to our grandchildren, this next generation that's going to step in and inherit the faith. And David pointed to some of the bad news. Well, what we decided to do was look at the good news. So if we can go to this next slide, we conducted this growing young study over a four-year period. We were looking at 250 churches that are not declining or struggling, but are thriving with teenagers and young adults. That study included Church of Christ congregations from the very beginning. And one of our central takeaways comes up on this next slide. So one of our central takeaways from that four years of research is that this process Oh, that one didn't look too good. That's all right. I'll narrate it. It's that growing young, engaging young people is not primarily about youth ministry. There it is. It's primarily about changing. It's about shifting church culture. Okay. Now, what that means is, of course, we need powerful camp experiences. Of course, we need inspirational, transformative mission trips. But we can't just look to the camps that happen over there, the mission trips that happen over there. We need to ask a question, what does it mean for us to be the body of Christ? What does it mean for us to be a church family? And what's the family that we are inviting young people into? What's the faith that we're inviting young people into? Uh, our takeaways are summarized on this next slide, something we call the growing young wheel. This is our diagram. I'm not going to cover every piece of it. Let me pull out a few pieces. What we learned from our four years of research is if you want to engage young people better, we found young people are drawn to churches that take Jesus's message seriously. Young people are drawn to churches where those young people are invited into processes for discipleship. Another takeaway, young people are drawn to churches that fuel a warm sense of community. What that means is young people are drawn to churches not just with great programming, but where young people would say, I am known, I am trusted, I am loved, I am supported. You start to look at that and all of a sudden, this isn't just new research, this starts to sound like something very ancient that I hear you as the Church of Christ like to think of, Acts chapter two. 
I didn't know the Dutch reformed. The Dutch reformed like it. We like Acts as well. But here was our. <laughs> thank you. Here, here's you our. You no longer need a bodyguard. Good All right, job. I'm okay. Thanks. I I feel like an insider. This is great. Here's the takeaway, and it's so simple, it's scary. So we've conducted really the largest research project in recent history on young people in the church. And the new information that we're learning about what these churches do is they start to lean into some very ancient truths like the church that we see in Acts chapter 2, where young people are being empowered and entrusted, where people are doing good in their community, where we're getting back to this idea as church's family. Okay, well, if that's all so simple, then why aren't our churches all moving in that direction and filled with young people? What we want to do is uh, invite you uh, to take an assessment uh, to really start to understand your existing church's culture. I'm going to let Kara Powell, our executive director, tell you about it in this two-minute video. Then David and I will let you know uh, what's next. So if we can play the video, please. Leading a church gets more challenging every day. We work hard to shepherd diverse groups of people who want to follow Jesus in a complex world. In the meantime, many churches are shrinking and aging. Some are disappearing altogether. Teenagers and young adults are walking away faster than we can keep up with. And we wonder, how do we become churches that young people discover and love? And how do we love teenagers and young adults well? Despite dismal trends nationwide, we've discovered hundreds of diverse, innovative churches engaging young people today. At the Foley Youth Institute, we studied these communities and uncovered six core commitments that are helping them grow young. These strategies can be your strategies too, because growing young starts when you understand your church's current reality. Vetted by ministry experts and validated by researchers, our Growing Young Assessment helps you take the first steps you need toward engaging young people. Listen to your congregation by inviting them to participate. Analyze the results with your team. Find out where you are strongest and where you need to grow. Then move forward in courage and faithfulness. Don't let the challenges ahead overwhelm your hope for change. Start with reality. Start growing young. So because of a, a great grant by the Pine Tops Foundation in the partnership between Pepperdine and, and Fuller and LCU, we're going to provide 30 churches with the opportunity to take this assessment. In just a moment, uh, the card that you received, Jake is going to walk us through that. But here's what you received. 30 churches will be selected across the United States and Canada. I think we have some Canadians here. So we can get a great sampling to first understand how are we doing as a tribe, faith tribe, in the growing young competencies, what you will receive is a very generous gift of the assessment that you will take with your church. You'll receive feedback, and you'll also have two webinars with Jake and I to help you understand what you're seeing and some of your next step forwards. So uh, we do hope that, that you will participate, and Jake will tell you a little bit about what to do next. Yeah, so to be very clear, this is not the part where we move to the sales presentation. Let me reiterate what David said. Thanks to a generous grant from the Pine Tops Foundation and Fuller Youth Institute, this is something that's being provided free for use in your church for up to 30 congregations. If you received one of these cards, I would invite you to pull it out now. If you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. And if we can put the, uh, the slide up that has the website on it, here is what we would like to invite you to do. 
Uh, at this moment, right now, if you have a smartphone, we'd invite you to pull it out to go to this website. There's a very short survey, take you about a minute or two, depending on how fast you use your smartphone. If you fill out this survey, all you're telling David and I is that your church might be interested in using the assessment for free. Okay, we just want to make sure we've got a spread of Church of Christ churches. We're not going to market anything. We're not going to start sending you all sorts of info. If you fill this out right now, you're just telling us we are interested in using the survey, and we will go from there. Uh, once you mark your interest, David and I will follow up sometime uh, by mid-June. Let those churches who get to participate know that you've been selected. We'll have a couple training webinars. We will show you how to use it at that point. You really have any time between now and next year's uh, lectureship, next year's gathering to utilize it because we really want to share those results next year of what we've learned about the Church of Christ broadly. Uh, so again, if you visit that website, you can do it now. If you don't want to visit the website now, that's fine. Take this card, take it home. You've got three or four weeks to go ahead and fill it out on your home computer. Uh, so otherwise, I'd invite you to do it now. And David, you want to tell us a little more about what this has looked like as you have utilized it? All right, so uh, serving as a ministry coach and a consultant in this, I've had the, the pleasure of working with two churches, and I'm going to go ahead and say our inside speak. I know that Dutch Reform doesn't have such issues, but we do have a left and a right side. You know, we have the hand clappers, non-hand clappers, hand raisers, non-hand raisers, and all of that. This is safe for everyone to use. I've, I've, used, uh, I've used it with both sides, and here's the common things that I hear back. Three things. One, it gives us a great place to start the discussion. You're going to actually see what's going on in your church, and we give you a demographics breakdown so you can't deny, and you can actually see this is where the information's coming from. So you get to start there, and also I've heard that everybody can agree to the competencies. We're not talking about worship modality, even though some things may come out. We're not talking about, you know, who should be served. We're talking about the competencies that are very Acts 2. Thank you for using Acts. It's, it's very common to us. I like to say it's a new, old way of doing church, and so we can all agree on these things. And then it provides a path forward, so you can practically do things to change your church community. And instead of just changing youth ministry and putting a finger in a leaking dam, we get to rebuild the dam. We get to rebuild so that maybe we can perhaps provide a different church culture where it's not just about us keeping something alive, but it's about building towards the future. Would you agree? Because 50% is too much, and this is an opportunity for us to be able to make a dent in that and to be able to impact this next generation. The Bible says that there was a generation that came after that of Moses that neither knew the great deeds of God and didn't know the stories, and that's why we had the book of Judges. We have to tell future generations about this Jesus message and what it looks like to walk in community. This is a great step for us to do together as a faith tribe and as your tribe in order to uh, impact the 50% loss and change those numbers. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you very much. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. 
Good morning, Harbor. You've changed your hair since last year. Someone once said wisdom is stating the obvious that everybody has forgotten. Here's the obvious. We got to bring ourselves to faith. Amen. One thing we cannot leave, we have to bring ourselves. But the question is, who are you? But not just who are you, but who are you really? So often we neglect or deny who we really are, and we live from the false self. But the, 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 the joy, the work of faith is to find and live from our truest self. So as we explore the life of David, we want to get underneath who David is in some ways to understand who we are. So I've written this piece entitled Stones Chosen. Kneeling at the water's edge, his eyes are filled with searching. A man-child crouches down to find the giant's surest ending. His thought, it's in the choosing. Ripples on the quiet stream, glisten, dapple, sunbeam worries over floating sticks and sundry leaves and sudden assortments of prized projectiles. It's always in the choosing. The wind whistles through the reeds accusingly and sparrows coax choke chirps and the man-child swallows the tart taste of doubt, all which share the same query, what do you think you're doing now? It's all about the choosing. Some stones are afterthoughts, some chosen by mass, others by merit. The man-child goes for the neglected ones, for he knows what it's like to be forgotten. Arthur Clay's Felgespar, rust flex for chia, sharp edged shell, and even dark obsidian. Water laps his digging hands as distant war drums beat their bitterness, as the giant taunts grow with heaviness, as fears flows in waves of weariness, as the tension builds in the army's reticence. Knowing David's avarice is limitless, the days feel brittle and pale, because it's all about the choosing. He sensuously rubs his sight against one rock's wet curves and crevices. Even as a youth, his eyes are drawn to life's allurements. He moves beyond the enticing pull, avoiding this trap for later. Because y'all know it's all about the choosing. Seeing himself within the stream, he, his hope is in the knowing of every facial crease and every furrowed brow of wanting, need, and winnowing. But what about the choosing? The brown one smooth, the gray basilisk pale green, the keen cleft copper one, the blue burrow rubbed raw, the, the hewn angle crag. He's choosing stones like he's choosing notes on a lyre. He's choosing stones like he's choosing words for his song. He's choosing stones like he's choosing options to punch, to pour out, or to pray. Five stones find themselves next to a sling in a man-child shepherd's bag. Such small stones alone they are, but building blocks for much, for promises, for family ties, for formation, foundation, and trust. Alone they are disappointed things, but together they are legend, the hope of fledging cliff and kin of messianic making. It's in the choosing. Just a moment of calm before calamity, a moment of peace for breathing, 
a moment where God and his chosen can be. Before a giant falls, a kingdom collapses, another one rises in response like the waters in its stirring. Soon there will be a sling in hand, and with it all its swirling, the spinning of humanity and divinity, the turning of time and temperament, the spiral of potential and proclivity, in the rotation of every love and love lost, soon there will be whirling of deception and authenticity, of exacting revenge and cutting the corners of cloaks. For the story is in the choosing, life longed for. It's in the choosing, our hearts torn for tears. It's in the choosing, one soul dies, yet another one lives. It's in the choosing, freedom found or self door shut. It's in the choosing, rape, relinquishing, four slugs to the skull, lengths of lynching ropes, cocks, crosses, empty tombs, open graves, gathering devotees to policy or prophecy. It's all in the choosing. It's all in the choosing. It's all in the choosing. It's always in the choosing. As the man-child stands erect at the creek bed of what is to be, he chooses these rocks because they are loved, not loved because he chooses. Not because they are perfect or popular or even preferred or that their flight path is known to be true. He stands there with a lingering sense. This in God's eyes is how he is viewed. You can own this as a sacred truth or disregard it in the losing. Believe withholding this one thing. It's always within the choosing. Let's all stand as we sing together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed. Desperate 
First, Matt Elliott, thank you so much, brother. I asked him to put together a team, and what an amazing group. Thanks for leading us in worship today. That was thanks to all of you. And we're blessed at Pepperdine with just an incredible chaplain's office. Sarah Barton is doing our keynote speech tomorrow night in the David series. And uh, to have Eric Wilson bring the word like that, thank you, my dear friend, for that spoken word. As you saw on the schedule, this is called the Danny and Carol Phillips uh, Special Speaker Series. Dear friends of the university, one of our board members, Danny Phillips and his wife, Carol, uh, gave quite a gift to us that make it possible for me to bring speakers like N.T. Wright, Walter Brueggemann, Bob Goff, Christine Kane, Nadia Boltzweber, and others like that. And uh, I'm so thankful for that. Carol couldn't be here this year because she's on grandmother duty, but Danny is here. Danny, would you stand? Let us thank you for that. Yeah, so much for you guys endowing this and uh, much more for your work on the board. Um, very grateful to introduce uh, our speaker today. I first met the name Rabbi David Wolpe several years ago. He wrote a book on grief that became very important to our family and uh, kept an eye on his writings since then. When I decided that this year would be on the story of David, a broken hallelujah, read as many books as I could get a hold of uh, that had been uh, written about David, in addition, of course, to again and again being soaked in First and Second Samuel. But uh, his book on David is so delightful and insightful that that became the first book I sent to the keynote speakers and said, let's... Let's let this kind of tie us all together. And uh, so we made the approach and asked if Rabbi Wolpe would come across the valley and speak to us today. And he agreed to do that. And we're, we're delighted. Named one of the 500 most influential people in Los Angeles in 
in 2016 and 2017. The most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek in 2012. And one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. David Wolpe is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple. Wolpe previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, the American Jewish University, Hunter College, and the University of California, Los Angeles. A columnist for Time.com, he's been published and profiled in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and the Jewish Week. He's been featured on the Today Show, Face of the Nation, ABC This Morning, and CBS This Morning. In addition, Wolpe has appeared prominently in series on PBS, A&E, History, and Discovery. He's the author of eight books, including the national bestseller, Making Loss Matter, Creating Meaning in Difficult Times, the one I alluded to before. And his newest book, David, the Divided Heart, is a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award and has been optioned for a movie by Warner Brothers. Beyond that, I want to thank David because he's agreed to stay afterwards and do some book signings. If you'd like to get his book on David and have him sign it, he will be in the back after this gathering. And even beyond that, I gave him like the latest possible time he could get here and me still be able to breathe. But he came at the very beginning because he said he wanted to hear us sing. And when I peeked around the corner, it seemed like that was a delight to you. And so we're delighted to have you. Would you welcome Rabbi David Wolpe? Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. Um, and I want to thank Danny and Carol Phillips and uh, congratulate them on their new grandson. Congratulations. I'll give you actually an old rabbinic blessing. Why not? I'm here. And you probably don't hear that many old rabbinic blessings. <laughs> so there is a rabbinic story that when God decided to bless Abraham, he couldn't decide how to bless him. And they said by analogy, it's like a man who's wandering for many days and he comes upon an oasis in the desert. And he sits at the tree and he drinks from the stream and he sits in the shade and as he's leaving, he looks back at the tree and he says, I want to bless you for everything you did for me, but I don't know how to bless you. I could bless you with abundant shade, but you have that. And I could bless you with deep roots, but you have those. And I could bless you with water, but you have water. So the only way I can bless you is to say, may all who come from you be like you. So may all who come from you be like you and blessings to your grandson. I also want to take, I did really enjoy the singing, but I want to offer one copyright edit. <laughs> At the very beginning, when you said, this is the day the Lord has made, Zehayom Asa Adonai, at the end of the psalm, at the end of the song, which was extraordinarily beautiful, and I did love the singing, it said, Words and Music by Rob Sill, 2002. <laughs> now, since I'm here on behalf of King David, <laughs> I just want to say, I'm sure somewhere he's complaining about copyright infringement. But other than that, it was great. <laughs> so
so my father was a rabbi in Philadelphia, and he always took his watch off before he spoke. And I have adopted that habit, and I once asked him why, and he said, I'll tell you why. My father answered everything with a story. He said, a man once came to synagogue, and he brought his friend who wasn't Jewish, and he said, don't worry, I'll explain everything that goes on. So they opened the ark, he explained what the ark was, they took out the scroll, the Torah, he explained what that was. The rabbi gets up to speak and he takes his watch off, the man says, what does that mean? He said, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so please don't be too excited by this, it's just pro forma. Um, but I am excited to speak about David because not only did I have the opportunity to write about David, who obviously uh, my parents reached back for my own name of David, um, but also because David is the most fascinating figure in the Hebrew Bible. I don't think anyone else comes close, and we know more about David than anyone else. Even though more probably in quantity of words is written about Moses, you don't get the same depth of characterization. And so before I begin talking about David, one caveat again in the form of a story about a rabbi and a doctor having a conversation and the doctor says, you know, rabbi, I don't mean to brag, but I want you to know that sometimes I treat patients for free. The rabbi thinks for a minute, he goes, I do that. The doctor says, well, when I write them prescriptions, I sometimes subvent the prescriptions on my own so that they don't have to pay anything and they can get whatever medicine they need without charge. And the rabbi thinks for a moment, he goes, yeah, I do that. Now the doctor's getting frustrated. He says, well, when I do surgeries, I make sure that the hospital doesn't charge them over above what the insurance will pay so that people who are indigent and who are poor can get surgery for free. The rabbi thinks for a minute, he goes, yeah, I do that. The doctor says, rabbi, all due respect, you don't have patience, you don't write prescriptions, and you certainly don't do surgery. And the rabbi said, oh, no, no, I mean, I, I say nice things about myself too. So I'm about to talk about David. And every page I wrote of the book when I kept writing, David does this and David is that. When I gave it to the first friend who read it in draft, they would write sometimes on the side, is this about you? Um, and I want you to know that it isn't, but it is. In the sense that every biblical character is a, is a mirror. We always see ourselves, otherwise we wouldn't read the Bible because everything has changed since the time of the Bible, clothes and language and culture and history, except human nature. And so when we explore David, we are also exploring ourselves. And now the story. You get three separate introductions to David, and they actually are chronologically not possible to put in a logical sequence. They don't fit together. It's almost like three separate snapshots that tell you different things about David's character. So the first 
is when God tells Samuel, after Saul has lost God's favor, and we will come back to Saul in just a second, God tells Samuel, go off and anoint the new king. And here, by the way, Samuel says to God, I, I can't go off and anoint the, if Saul knows that I'm going to anoint the new king, he's going to kill me. And here God does something that I think every Bible reader should be aware of. He tells Samuel to lie. I think this is great, right? <laughs> Even God knows human beings can't live with 100% honesty, you know? So when I say to you afterwards, did you like my talk? <laughs> God will forgive you if you say yes. He says, just go and say you're off to sacrifice. So Samuel does, and he comes to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And Jesse has seven sons, which biblically is the perfect number. And when Samuel asks him to present his son, he brings Eliab, who's this tall, handsome, strapping figure of a man. And Samuel is about to anoint him, and God says, pay no attention, I've rejected him. Because not as human beings see does God see. People see what is visible, but God sees into the heart. So Samuel says, next, please. It goes on, all seven sons, none of them is the new king. And Samuel says, are you sure you don't have any more kids? And Eliab goes, oh yeah, there's the little one out back pasturing the sheep. He brings him in, he's young and ruddy-cheeked. God says, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Now remember, we're not only telling this story to find out about God, but about David. David is so neglected that his own father doesn't think to introduce him to the company. And it's not just any company, right? It's the leader of Israel who's come to his house. So you can imagine how David not only teaches the lesson of the least of us, but also David's own psychology, which plays in to who he becomes later. Because the second story is David and Goliath. And why does David come to the challenge of Goliath? It's because his father tells him, the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting. I want you to bring food for your brothers. And he goes there, and he hears about this Philistine champion that has challenged anyone to fight him. And you may or may not know this, but one of the clues to biblical characters is to look at the first thing that they say. What is the first thing that David says? What will be given to the guy who defeats Goliath? Okay? Then he goes on to say, because he's insulted the God of Israel, and on and on and on, but that's not the first thing he says. And his older brother says to him, what are you doing here, kid? You shouldn't be here. And David, I have two older and one younger brothers, so David, in the style of younger siblings forever and ever, says, I'm not doing anything wrong. But then he finds out, in fact, that no one will challenge Goliath, not even Saul, 
the king of Israel will challenge Goliath, and David does. And then there is this beautiful symbolic scene where Saul tries to outfit him with his armor, but David can't wear it because he's a kid, and he takes it off. And he says, look, I've defeated animals, wild animals, and I can do this, and they have no one else. Now, David and Goliath is supposed to be the story of an underdog, but if you read it carefully, David has a long-range weapon. And this is part of what David's greatest gift is in terms of being a king and a leader. He expands the possibilities. He sees the world differently from everyone else. When Goliath says, why are you coming at me with sticks? You can imagine that David held his shepherd's staff because he wanted to deceive him into thinking that he thought he was going to beat him with a stick, which is ludicrous, but Goliath doesn't take him seriously anyway. And so David takes his sling, and by the way, as you can imagine, they have actually now done tests on Bedouin farmers in modern Israel, and yes, you can kill somebody with a stone, and they're incredibly accurate. And the reason, if you want to know, that, and this is a nice sidelight, that David was so skilled with a slingshot is that shepherds would vary sometimes the number of sheep that they had from day to day. Sometimes you go out with 10 sheep, sometimes with 30. And so you would keep the number of stones in your sling as sheep that you had to care for. So shepherds always had stones and slings and a lot of time on their hands. Right? That's why, by the way, as a sidelight into a Jewish custom, sometimes you will go to Jewish graves and you'll see stones on the grave. One of the beautiful traditional explanations is you ask God to keep the soul of the person like a stone in the sling of a shepherd. So David had done this a lot. And when he came against Goliath, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he lodged a stone and killed him and cut off his head and thereby became effectively already the hero of Israel, even as a child. The third story is when Saul... Now, let me just say, I'm not a psychologist. It's very hard to psychoanalyze people. I mean... Think of it this way, when you read a, bi read, read a biography about somebody, imagine how well your best friend would describe your love life. And when you realize how many mistakes your best friend would make, you realize it's very hard to know yourself, to know your best friend, and to write a book about somebody that you never even met is hubris, right? So. I wasn't even writing the book about Saul, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, but Saul was a manic depressive. <laughs> Just wild guess here. That is, according to the Bible, he had periods, I mean, it almost is like it's describing bipolar. He had periods of mania, and he had periods of deep depression. Um, and his coterie of assistants solicit David to come and play music for him, to lift him out of the doldrums. And Saul, interestingly, doesn't seem to know, neither at, at the um, 
incident with Goliath, nor when they bring David into the house, Saul doesn't seem to know who he is. So part of this could be Saul's problem, but part of it is this extraordinary continuity in David's life from his father forgetting him to his substitute father not paying attention to him. And you know that sometimes neglect defeats you and sometimes it gives you this incredible drive to distinguish yourself and prove that even though maybe nobody paid attention to you when you were little, the world is going to hear from you now. And one thing that seems very clear about David is that he was a driven and ambitious man. Because when he comes into Saul's house, there are essentially three powerhouses. There's Saul, there's Saul's heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan, and there's Saul's daughter, Michal. And one by one, they all fall in love with David. Every one of them. Now, you can explain this by David's just a very lovable character. Or you can also explain it, or since a lot of things have more than one explanation in terms of human behavior, you can explain it as well as David knew how to make himself loved because the Hebrew name David means beloved. And beloved people not only are naturally lovable, just among us, they also know how to be lovable, right? You can't go through life being loved and not say, ah, oh, when I do this, people love me. So David is loved by Saul, who also bears a murderous rage against him, but we'll get back to that in a second. Sometimes those two things are not incompatible. He's loved by Michal, who not only loves him and marries him, but loves him so much that she saves his life from her blindly jealous father, and is loved by Jonathan. Now, whether the love of David and Jonathan was sexual or not sexual, the answer is the Bible actually doesn't say. It just doesn't say. I think you can make a case both ways, and I'm happy to make the case both ways if anybody is interested. But for the moment, what is relevant is less the nature of the love than the fact of the love then the truth is that David, everywhere he goes, manages somehow to capture people's hearts. And even though you can do that a little bit artificially, in the end, if you live with people and they love you, there's got to be something about you that evokes that love. And remember that it wasn't just David, Jonathan, Michal. That is, by the way, the first, later on, Abigail, who I will come back to. It's also the truth that the people of Israel love David. And that wasn't said about Saul. And that wasn't even entirely true in a certain sense about Moses. 
The people revered Moses, but David evokes love in a different way. And so we here have this character who is on this remarkable trajectory. And not only is David loved, but David does something that is really unusual among the men of the Bible. I won't say among men in general, I'll let you decide. Which is, David listens to women. <laughs> he really listens. Maybe this is part of why he's beloved. Not only does David listen to Michal and allow Michal to rescue him, which she does, but later on, when David meets Abigail, who is, by the way, good trivia question, the first and perhaps only woman in the Bible who is called intelligent before she's called beautiful. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but also, Abigail gives the longest speech in the Hebrew Bible that is given to a woman addressed to a man. David not only doesn't interrupt her, but he listens to the entire speech and changes his behavior because of what Abigail says to him. This is unusual. <laughs> Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. It's unusual. And it shows you that David, who is ambitious and a warrior and masculine and gets the loyalty of a band of outlaws, because that's essentially what they were, who traveled with him and who ran a protection racket. That's basically what he did. I mean, you know, look, I defended him on copyright, but, but the man ran a protection racket. He said, you know, to people, we will protect you. That's what he was trying to do with Abigail's husband, Naval. He said, I will provide protection for him if he feeds my soldiers and so on and so on. Naval wants no part of it. David wants to kill him. Abigail tells him not to. Um, but because he's David, God conveniently does the job for him. Naval somehow wakes up dead. Um, and, and nonetheless, despite David's hyper-masculinity, he has this relationship of attention and of care with women that is unusual, and even his falling out with Michal is because David danced before the people which she found undignified. But David had a joy and a sort of heedlessness about the normal dignities that was, I'm sure, part of the reason why he was so beloved. Having said that, David, like a lot of successful people, was more successful in the world than he was at home. And David's domestic life, which again is more detailed than anyone else in the Bible, is worth noting not only because it says so much about David and about redemption, but also because it teaches us a lot about ourselves. David, after all, has as his first family people that don't pay attention to him, and as his second family, this very ambiguous family of Saul who hates him, who wants to kill him, 
who loves him and weeps and apologizes for trying to kill him, but eventually chases him all over Israel, so much so that David has to run away to Philistine territory because he can't live in Israel because Saul will kill him. Then Saul himself is killed in battle. I'm skipping a lot, but I'm giving you the highlights. Saul himself is killed in battle. I should say that David has a remarkable knack of having his enemies killed while he's somewhere else, <laughs> right? It's extraordinary. It happens like five or six separate times. And then when the people who kill the enemies come to David and say, look what I did, I killed your enemy, he says, how could you do that, <laughs> right? Terrible, terrible that you did that. So he's off in, in the land of the Philistines, right, in what is now Gaza, while Saul back in Israel is being killed. And Jonathan, who is Saul's heir apparent, dies in the battle as well. And then at the opening of 2 Samuel, because all of this is in the book of Samuel, um, just a word about that, it's called, the book is usually named after the first few words or the first character. That's why it's called Samuel, because the first 13 chapters are all about Samuel. And the reason there's Samuel 1 and 2 is not because the division is so natural, but because scrolls get unwieldy, right? They can only be so big. So when the book is too long, rather than have a gigantic scroll, you have scroll 1 and scroll 2. Um, it sounds vaguely like Dr. Seuss, but, um, <laughs> but that's Samuel 1 and 2. So. At the beginning of Samuel 2, David has this beautiful eulogy for Jonathan, right? Where he says, by the way, his love for me was greater than the love of women. And again, can be seen in different ways. One is he could just, he could actually be making the distinction for you and be saying the, the love of women, although you might think that's the greatest love, this friendship was greater than that because remember, Although today we don't do it, in Western history, speaking romantically about friendships was not a rare trope. It was very common. Um, just look back, Damon and Pythias, look at Shakespeare. Male friendships were often spoken of romantically, or he could be speaking romantically. I mean, you decide you, whatever, you, whatever you like. Um, but now, the way is completely clear for David to be king. And so he goes back to Israel in virtual triumph. And he's now king of Israel. And we all know what pride goes before. Pride goes before a fall. And David has achieved everything, everything that he wanted. He's loved of Israel. He's the hero of Israel. And then there is that ominous line. It says, it spring, the time when kings go to war. By the way, the reason kings go to war in spring is first of all, the ground is hard. It's hard to grow, go to war when the ground is soft because horses don't ride well. And there's a lot of fruit and other things on the trees so soldiers can be fed. That's why spring is the time to go to, just in case. Spring is the time to go to war. Um, 
not in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles, we don't have seasons. <laughs> this is, by the way, completely irrelevant, but I, I have a captive audience. So <laughs> this, is, this is Los Angeles's great problem, right? I, growing up in Philadelphia, I will now tell you what's wrong with Los Angeles, because I've been here for decades, so I, I almost am a native. The problem with Los Angeles is there's no fall here, no autumn. And the reason that's a problem is when you grow up in autumn, you realize that the process of getting older is beautiful. In Los Angeles, it's spring, 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 spring until you die, right? <laughs> so you have to be 20 for 80 years and then you die. But the idea of getting older is actual, na actually natural in most of the rest of the world. Just thought I would mention that. <laughs> so David, at spring, the time when kings go to war, and it says, and David was walking on the roof of the palace. Already, the artistry is apparent. That is, if it's the time when kings go to war, and Israel is at war. What's David doing at home in the palace? Other than he's decided it's time for the troops to take care of our enemies. I'm gonna stay here and enjoy my triumph. And of course, that's when he sees Bathsheba or Bathsheba, depending on. Now, one of the things that I realized in writing the book, which I'd never thought of before, and I didn't really see any commentary about although you can never say there is no commentary about, right? Because nobody could read all the commentary that exists in all the traditions on one verse, much less on one book. But I didn't see anyone mention the fact that if David could spot Bathsheba nude bathing on a, on a roof, they must have been fairly close, right? He couldn't see her miles away. So, David is looking at Bathsheba bathing nude on a roof nearby. Now, again, whether Bathsheba knew that the king walks on the roof at two in the afternoon, or she didn't know, I don't know. All I do know is, whatever you think about Bathsheba's con conduct, there is a clear power disparity here. And when they introduce Bathsheba, they say, daughter of so-and-so and wife of so-and-so. As in, this woman is really taken. And David summons her. He summons her. He sleeps with her throughout all of this, by the way. Again, the artistry of the Bathsheba says nothing, not a word. She's completely silent. The first words she speaks are the note that she sends to the king, I'm pregnant, okay? Now, this is obviously the great crisis so far of David's life. What does he do? He summons Uriah home, Uriah, Uriah being Bathsheba's husband. And Uriah is a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. So one of the things that you know is, however he behaves, you expect that he's not gonna behave up to the standard of an Israelite. Because he's one of the tribes that dwells in Israel, maybe are allied with Israel, maybe will be in the army, but he's not an Israelite. And yet, as we discover, he is far more moral than the king of Israel. 
So David says to him, so how's it going out there, you know, at the war? Um, and he gives a report and he says, you know, good to see you, glad you're home, give you a little leave, go home, sleep with your wife. Arias says, how could I do that? When my Lord's troops are out there fighting, I can't go home and sleep with my wife. And now David has a problem. He, he happened to have slept with the one moral guy's <laughs> wife and he doesn't know what to do. So he gets him drunk. And after he's drunk, he says, now go home and sleep with your wife, for God's sakes. He doesn't say for God's sakes, but I'm, <laughs> I'm ad-libbing. Um, and Arias says, no, I won't do it. And then David commits the most cynical act of brutality in the entire Bible. He writes a note to Yoav, the head of his troops, who's another fascinating character, and says, put this guy on the front line so that he dies. Seals it and gives it to Uriah and says, when you go back, give this to Yoav. Now, what we don't know, what we can't know is, did he contrive somehow to read the note and deliver it anyway or suspect what the note said? I don't know, but he gives it to, to Joab, to Yoav, who reads it, does what he says, sends a note back, and tells David that the deed was done. Now, one thing that you realize is it doesn't entirely get David off the hook anyway, right? Because now Bathsheba's pregnant, and unless she cooperates and says, oh, my husband came home, it's still going to be David's kid. But it never gets that far. Because now Nathan comes to David. And Nathan is a prophet in Israel, about whom we know very little, although I have some speculation. And he comes to David and he says, once there was a rich man, and he had lots of flocks and herds, and there was a poor man who had one lamb. And the rich man had some guests, and he took the lamb from the poor man, slaughtered it, and served it for dinner. What should be done with such a man? And David says, such a man deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. You realize what Nathan has done. He's given David the chance to say how immoral he was. Rather than saying to him, what you did is terrible, he gives David the opportunity to condemn himself out of his own mouth. And once he does that, David has his finest moment by what he doesn't do. What David doesn't do is say, off with Nathan's head. Because in the ancient world, that's what kings did. They could do whatever they wanted. There was no restraint on a king. And David could easily have done that, and he could have survived it, and he could have lived with it, and he probably still would have been kings of Israel. If you read the book of Judges, you see how many, and the book of Kings, how many kings of Israel were not in any way redemptive figures. But instead, David repents. And he has that moment of grace that elevates him above his gifts and his talents and expresses his soul. It's important to know, though, 
that the story doesn't end there. And the reason that it's important is because, at least as I read the Bible, grace is not something that is earned once and forgotten. David goes back to the home that he has completely destroyed. And his oldest son, Avshalom, whom he has neglected, rebels against him. And this is because Avshalom is upset. David's, Avshalom's half-brother, Amnon, because remember, David's had several wives. His half-brother has raped his full sister, Tamar. And Avshalom, I am again abbreviating the story, kills Amnon, kills his half-brother. And you wonder, through all this, where's David? And the answer is, absent. He's not there. He learned absence at his father's knee, so to speak, and now he is an absent father. And in time, Avshalom comes and rebels against him. And the reason that this is so powerful is also one of the two animating questions for me in this entire book. The thing that I started out with was, one, can David love? And two, why does he get to be the ancestor of the Messiah? Here's a guy who's an adulterer, who's a murderer, and he's the one that God chooses to be the ancestor of this. It doesn't make any sense. There are more enviable characters that you could pick. And again and again, it says, Dave, when David talks about Jonathan, he doesn't say, I loved him. What does he say? Your love was dearer to me than the love of women. It says the people loved David. Michal loved David. Saul loved David. Jonathan loved David. It never says David loved them. So I wonder, can David love? And then you come to the story of Avshalom, who is his son who rebels against him. And he says to Yoav, whom you might remember from the guy who made sure Uriah was killed, right? The head of David's troops. He says to him and the other heads of the troops, go out and put the rebellion down. But whatever you do, do not touch a hair of Avshalom's head. Right? Avshalom, who, by the way, was known for his luxuriant hair and consequent, not consequent, but accompanying ego. And what happens? What happens is, of course, as you know, the Bible loves the, uh, almost mythologically, these, you get hoist by your own petard, and Avshalom got hung up by his hair. He's riding through uh, the, a thicket, and he gets hung up by his hair, and he's hanging there helpless. And this guy comes to Yoav and says, oh my God, Avshalom's over there hanging helpless. And Yoav says, why didn't you kill him? And he says, well, you heard what David said. Remember, Yoav is a general, right? He doesn't care what David says in terms of David's softness of heart. So he runs over, and he stabs, Yoav, and he stabs Avshalom and kills him. Then he goes back, and David hears the news that Avshalom has died, and there is that heartbreaking scene when you realize that actually David can love. Avshalom, Avshalom, he says, like Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, the Satpen family being a, a sort of southern Gothic version of the David story, and he is heartbroken. 
and he weeps and he says, you know, better he should have taken me than my son. And then there is this remarkable scene that tells you how realistic the book of Samuel is. Joab comes to David and he says to him, cut it out. Stop it. Because there are all these men out there in your army who were willing to give their lives to put down the rebellion for the guy that you're crying about. And if you want to have an army tomorrow, you better stop mourning for the guy that was killed today. And that's where David shows himself more of a king than a father, because he pulls himself together. And he goes and greets his troops. And in that moment, you see the inevitable contradiction or tension at the very least between the world as you have to be if you're a leader and the home that you have to tend to if you're a person. And that it puts almost unbearable tension on David, which leads to the last scene. David has now been king of Israel, and he has achieved maybe the most remarkable thing that he has done in his life, which is he's about to die in his bed, right? Which is, for a king, an achievement, right? King Louis XIV said, better I should be killed by my enemies than my children. Because that's what happened to kings, right? You've all read the story, seen the movies. David's about to die in his bed, and Solomon is going to be his heir apparent. Now, after this long drama, and really, I, I, this sounds ridiculous, I cannot urge you enough to read Samuel 1 and 2, because the story is even more fascinating and dramatic than I've had a chance to convey. You think David's going to give some beautiful, uplifting speech to Solomon. He's going to say, you know, walk in the ways of God, my child, and, and, and be faithful and, and wholehearted, no. He says, listen, this guy who betrayed me and I promised I wouldn't kill him, Solomon, you know what to do. That's <laughs> what he says. It's, it's the last speech of the Godfather was modeled on this. I have no doubt about that, right? He even says, this guy who did me a good turn, make sure he's taken care of. And then, the Hebrew, in a very beautiful, um, in a very beautiful uh, twist, tells us the following. At the very end of the book of Samuel, at the very first chapter, rather, of the book of Kings, it says, Now King David was old, advanced in years. The second chapter, it says, Now David was dying. So listen to the difference. King David was old. David was dying. Because when you're dying, you don't die as a king, right? You die as a person. It's true whether you're a doctor or a priest or a rabbi or whatever, when you die, you, it's just the human being before God. And so David before God wants to make sure, as every father would, that his son is safe. And so really, it is consistent with David's character and almost with his mission to tell Solomon, these are the enemies you have to watch out for. Forget nice platitudes. I want you to, to survive as a king. So watch out for this guy, watch out for this guy, and take care of that guy. And you may know 
that Solomon's brother was his rival for the kingship, and in true David fashion, took him a little while, but eventually he eliminated him too. And so I came to the end of the book and I said, I mean, not the book of reading, when I was writing it and I said, okay, so why David? Why does David get to be the progenitor of the Messiah? It doesn't, it's not, it's not who any of us would pick. And there are lots of reasons given by the tradition. One is you could just say, well, that's how it turned out historically, but, but that's not good enough for us, right? Um, and you know that the longest genealogy in the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament is the genealogy that ties Jesus to David because you have to show that he came from David. The other is um, that David was the one who united the kingdom, who founded Jerusalem, um, among his greatest achievements, who wrote the Psalms. So he was religiously such an important figure, but even that doesn't feel like that means he should get to be the Messiah, the, the person who is the ancestor of the Messiah when God, remember, wouldn't even let David build the temple. David asked to build the temple and God said, you have blood on your hands. I don't want you building my temple. So I came up with my own theory which came, which really came out of the verse where God says to David, you are a man after my own heart. And I thought, what could that possibly mean? Does that mean that God likes murder and adultery? Of course not. What does it mean you're a man after my own heart? And I grew up in a tradition where essentially, because God's complicated, would require a whole nother lecture. But essentially, God is everything. In a very real sense, it's not that we are identical to God, but that everything that exists in some way is willed by or participates in whatever God is. So who best represents God in this world as a model, the human being who is the most comprehensive expression of what it is to be human. And David was everything. Yes, he was a murderer and an adulterer. He was also a poet and a warrior and a sibling and a father and a lover and a listener and a friend and a founder and a creator and every single thing that you could be in the ancient world, an underdog and a leader a child that we experience, and an old man whom we see and listen to pass away. Every human experience that you could have and record in the ancient world, all of it is summed up in one character, which may be why he's called beloved. Because the truth is, as human beings, there is some part of us that loves everything human that is attached to everything human. And when we see someone who is this fullest expression, we understand why redemption can't come from half a person. Redemption has to come from the full expression of the human heart, which as you know, includes all things, black and white, good and bad, top, bottom, side to side, creative, mundane, sacred, profane, everything, everything is summed up in the heart. And everything that was summed up in the human heart 
finds its expression in this one remarkable figure. And so, as I finished, I thought it makes sense that David is a man after God's own heart. Because David is a kind of expression of all of our hearts, the best parts and some of the worst. And that's why we need a David. And that's why we need a God. And that's why we pray that one day the worst will be gone and we will all be redeemed. Thank you. stand together. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. And I will fear no For my God is with me, and if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I fear? Oh no, you never let go, through the calm and through the storm, oh no. You never let go in every high and every low. Oh no, you never let go, Lord, you never let go of me. And I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. A glorious light beyond all compare. And there will be an end to these troubles. But until that day comes, we'll live to know you here on the earth. And I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is Oh, no. that is coming for the heart that holds on, and there will be.
forget about the book signing out here with uh, Rabbi Wolpe, and have a great day. We'll see you later.